I'm here today with June Atkinson. Thank you for coming, June. Thank you for having me, Kirk. Sure. So you served as the superintendent, state superintendent. How, how many years were you in that position? I was in office approximately 12 years. Okay, so. Starting in 2005, August of 2005 to uh, December 2016. So I, I do want to ask, since you were in that position for a good number of years, and I imagine in a bit of a, a period of transition, what do you see, what did you see then as the biggest challenge facing education in the state, and, and maybe how do you think that might have changed now? When I first became state superintendent, our graduation rate was 65%. And knowing of the demand for uh, a skilled workforce, I recognized that that was unacceptable for our students. We had, we were, we had a culture where it's okay for some students uh, to drop out of school, and it was okay for some students to graduate. Uh, I believe that it was important for all of our students to graduate. So when I left office, our graduation rate had moved to 86%. And I consider that uh, a very uh, high accomplishment for the Department of Public Instruction and the teachers and educators across North Carolina. Uh, we continue to increase graduation rates by a small amount. It, it dropped this past year. But an issue that continues to haunt North Carolina is that of teacher preparation, recruitment, and retention. Uh, for some reason, uh, there's a culture in North Carolina that it's not necessary to pay our teachers well. And there's hardly a, a company or an enterprise that really thrives when it does not treat its employees well. So that was an issue when I was state superintendent, and it continues to be an issue today. We need to uh, prepare, recruit, and retain great teachers because great teachers have the greatest influence on whether students are successful. And we have to have, we have to treat teachers as professional. We have to pay them uh, a living wage. We have to pay them a wage that would be comparable to people who need the same type of preparation. And although teachers do not go into the field uh, to become uh, rich, uh, they don't take a vow of poverty either. So consequently, that's an issue. Another issue that is really difficult to change that was a part of my being state superintendent and even now is the whole culture of testing. We have a 20th century model of testing of our students, of evaluating our students' progress, of evaluating our schools. And the General Assembly has been steadfast in keeping a 20th century testing model when we were in the 19 years into the 21st century, and we right. yet still have that same model. So that continues to be an issue. Well, I guess you read my notes because that was one question I wanted to pose to you. Are there certain ways or practices in uh, the teaching profession or in education that are sort of anachronisms, things that we just continue to do just to do it, and it, I suppose t uh, the testing is, is one aspect of that. Uh, testing is a major aspect of that. We've developed a culture around testing where we wait until the end of the year to uh, test students. Uh, that uh, was okay when we were in the, in the mindset that we need to sort and select students. Some will go this way 
uh, in these professions, others will go this way. Well, that's out of date. What you need to do is to use the Barney Fife method. Um, with Andy Griffin, he would say, Andy, we've got to nip it in the bud. Well, we have technology today where we can assess students along the way to determine what they need to learn next, uh, to help the teacher determine what to teach next. But our, our testing culture, driven by the General Assembly, is set up so we wait until the end of the year rather than assessing along the way and looking at growth of students. Well, uh, this is something that you and I talked about when you were, I have to mention you were an Institute of Politics fellow back um, when I was at Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about how you had um, been aware of, I don't know if it's been implemented, but this idea that maybe everybody in the same class isn't performing at the same level or people in the same grade don't necessarily need to be taking the exact same classes. So would there be a way as we move toward maybe a more digital classroom to basically have bespoke courses? You would be covering the same material over the course of the year, perhaps. But if somebody is better at math, then don't keep them at the same level of math. Give them something unique to them. So do you think that might play into changing the way we um, educate children is to have more curated courses for individuals instead of uh, a cookie cutter method? Uh, Absolutely. We need to maintain uh, a basis of high standards for all students because we as adults cannot predict what our students are going to do. So consequently, we need to make sure that we have high standards where all students reach the same level. But how the students get to that high level of expectation should vary by students. In the educational Uh, vernacular we talk about personalized learning or customized learning and with technology we have samples throughout the United States in some states about how learning is personalized for example if I'm interested in healthcare I would learn my mathematics my algebra my geometry through the field of uh, healthcare whereas if I were interested in construction engineering I may have a different approach and so Technology allows us to do that today. So why should someone who is really good in X subject not be able to take an assessment along the way to go to the next step rather than waiting for the entire class? And that requires a huge culture change in public education, and it also requires a huge difference in mindset of parents and legislators and educators. Well, that, that reminds me a bit when um, I went to UNC freshman year, you had to take an English class, but you were allowed to choose one in a specific uh, field. It's like, like I took one that was like focused on public policy and law because mm-hmm. that's what I was interested in. But wow. they had it for the healthcare. If you wanted to be a doctor, but you still had to take an English class, you could take one that was more about, you know, stuff you would talk about in in healthcare field or the type of uh, communications you would use in, in that field. So. I think if we're doing it in higher education and it works, then you know it makes sense to implement it there. And I think you mentioned how they use these different programs in other states. I wanted to ask if, is there another state, or maybe not even at the state level, but are there other places where they are doing education well, maybe better than other places that maybe North Carolina should model? Yeah, well, we, we do, there is not a state uh, that is doing the total system change. But there are schools with probably within any 
state in the union that will have elements of uh, personalized learning. And there are some examples in uh, North Carolina, our early colleges, our School of Technology in Gaston County, uh, the Technology School in Union County, uh, a Technology School in Charlotte-Mecklenburg are all examples of how uh, personalized learning is taking place. Those places, however, do lack the notion of assessment along the way in order to determine what to do next. So to make change in education, you have to have a big dream, but you also have to implement certain segments so that you can have a system of change that will be beneficial to students. Do you think education is a, a difficult field to innovate in because people are maybe conservative in the sense that they were educated in a certain way and they want their kids to have the same education? Or at least it, it's one thing to innovate something like transportation, I guess, but it's another to say we're going to completely overhaul the way that we teach children, and which is something you can only do once. You can't go back and fix it. You know? <laughs> it's extremely difficult to innovate in education, and there are several reasons why. One is practically everyone has gone to school, and I bet I've heard a million times, well, when I was in school, we did it this way. Uh, so you, first of all, you have the memory and the experience of people who want to change education to the way it was. Second is public schools are the people's schools. And so consequently, you have so many different entities involved in public education. The entity, from my perspective, having the greatest influence is that and power is that of the General Assembly. So we know how it much time it takes to innovate with, an, with a public body such as the General Assembly. You have local boards of education, you have superintendents and central office staff, you have the Department of Public Instruction, you have business and industry, and, all, and nonprofits and associations all believing that they have the answer to innovation in our state. And what's one person's innovation is someone else's tradition. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of that. Recently, an announcement was made that February would be Career Pathway Month. Well, Career Pathway started in our schools in the 1980s. And in many respects, Career Pathways are already institutionalized in our schools. And there have been uh, many people working to help students select career pathways, courses that they could take along with acad other academic courses. So we are really at 4.0 or even 5.0 version of career pathways, but some people have just discovered them. So some people see these as innovation and others would say, well, no, this has become institutionalized and we need to go to the next version of career pathways. So uh, the other problem we face with innovation is approximately 80% of all the people who live in North Carolina do, have, do not have children in school. And so consequently, you have that factor as far as a push for innovation. Well, when we talk about finding ways to innovate from other states or other districts or even specific schools, 
is that not the purpose of the charter type schools and the independent schools that we have in North Carolina? This idea that they are given leniency to do what whatever they want to do in many instances, and then the idea being we take their best practices and apply it to public schools. Now, this might be a loaded question because I come at it with a certain perspective, but now those schools, they they're measured with different rules. They have different metrics for testing and things like that, which make it difficult to compare to public schools, right? No, they have the same metric. Uh, okay. All of the charter schools have to take the same end-of-course test mandated by the General Assembly and the same end-of-grade test mandated by the General Assembly. So you do have that comparison, and you also have the comparison of growth of students okay. on from one test to the other. Well, and I come from Rowan, and we have now, it's an independent uh, district, I guess. Mm-hmm. They have the renewal district. Right. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like in practice, the renewal district? Or th- they just have leniency, and they sort of see what works? Yeah. One of the biggest differences between uh, a public district school or school system and a public charter school is that the charter school gets its money in one lump sum, and it's from the department, I mean, from the General Assembly. And so it is up to the school to determine how those dollars are used. Uh, charter schools have the flexibility to pay teachers any salary the charter school wants to pay them or any amount of money to pay the principal. That's not true of public schools. Right. So what's happened in, North Car- in Rowan County is that the district as a whole, the first in the state, has been given the flexibility as all charter schools in the state to use the dollars the way that Rowan County's Board of Education and Superintendent want to use those dollars to educate children. So they have the flexibility um, to uh, pay some teachers X number of dollars while other teachers make Y uh, salaries. They have the flexibility to pay uh, principals different salaries. So they have the same flexibility except for providing transportation and uh, school nutrition uh, as charter schools. And you were right, when the initial charter school bill was passed, it was for the purpose of innovation. And those innovative ideas um, should inform what is happening in public schools, other public schools. We've yet to realize that dream in North Carolina, though, or that purpose. Well, the renewal district sounds good in theory to me. I I remember when I was on the campaign you and I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. the superintendent there. One of the issues that they had was, you know, that local superintendent has a better idea of the needs in that county than a legislator from Fayetteville does, you know. So what are the... What, what sort of arguments would you levy against the idea of making every district a renewal district? Is it Are there regulations that we don't know if we should remove? Or? Well, it's hard for me to argue that all public schools in North Carolina uh, should not have that same flexibility. Um, but as a part of having that flexibility, there has to be a really close watch to make sure that progress is being made for the children in that state. One of the, uh, the General Assembly traditionally has had the attitude we know best as to how local school districts should spend their money. And 
given the trend of decentralization in many other areas, I think it's time for North Carolina General Assembly to give that same flexibility to all school districts in the state. And it is important, however, in so doing, to, uh, not to cut the funding because one thing that can happen <clears throat> when you put all the money in one pot is that you stand, traditionally history has told us that when you put all the money in one pot and you don't have people pushing for money for children with special needs or career technical education or gifted and talented, the school districts lose money. So that's one of the precautions of giving that flexibility is that they stand a chance of losing money for well, kids. I suppose, too, when you have a conservative bended legislature, if, if you're giving a county X number of dollars and they don't spend all that money, they're not going to get that money next in the next time money's allocated. So there is an incentive also for individual districts to spend every dollar you get, right? So you don't lose any dollars. Yeah, typically at the end of any school year, and there are exceptions, but typically the money reverts to the general fund and it's reallocated. There are some exceptions to that. Um, federal funds uh, are in the hands of school districts for at least 16 to 18 months before uh, the dollars revert. Uh, I know the legislature is looking at putting a school bond, I think, uh, construction. and But that is just a drop in the bucket, I think, to the actual needs of the schools. That is certainly a good start. But do you see, having been in, in that role for so many years, is is construction the biggest need, you think? Or if, if you were going to allocate money to schools and they could only spend it on one thing, what would be the first concern, you think? My, uh, I've never changed my attitude about this, and that is... Uh, we need to invest in the staff through salaries, et cetera. Of course, uh, a part of investing in the staff is to make sure that they are in places with good working conditions. Uh, I've visited schools where when it rains, they have to have buckets and mops yeah. uh, to clean the room before they start teaching. So that's not providing a good work, uh, good work environment. So I applaud the General Assembly for wanting to have bonds to support uh, building in our state. Uh, one of the big issues that we're going to face, uh, in fact, school districts are facing now, is except for the metropolitan areas of Wake County, Guilford County, Buncombe County, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, and Winston-Salem, school districts are losing students. And unless someone addresses how we're going to educate our children in our rural areas with a declining population, with a declining population of children, and with crumbling buildings, we will see a huge urban-rural divide in our state widen. Well, I, this is seems like a perennial topic um, for people that are campaigning for office, but do you, having been there for, you know, a dozen years or so, it has the um, vocational courses, have they just sort of disappeared? Or is, or, is there, or is that something you just hear about a lot? There's a perception that people just aren't learning practical skills in, in high school? <laughs> well, I started, I was a student at Stanton River High School, and I took career technical education or vocational courses. I majored in a vocational area and taught 
vocational courses, business courses in uh, Roanoke, Virginia and in Charlotte, Mecklenburg. So one of my greatest loves is that students have the opportunity to take career technical education. Uh, it's a little known fact in North Carolina that over 90% of the students who graduate from our public schools have taken at least one career technical education course. What the difference is that students don't lump all the classes in career technical education or vocational education as vocational career technical education. It's another course to them. And so we go through ways of resurgence of more people paying attention to career technical education or vocational education. And so we are in that upward slope of people paying attention to say, to notice that career technical education is a great strategy to help students learn mathematics and English language arts and science. Career technical education is an excellent way to help students gain skills so they can pay their way through college, as I did. Career technical education is a way to interest students into, uh, in careers and to see all the many ways that they can have a livable wage. So. Uh, we have more students enrolled in career technical education than we have uh, in the last 12 years than in the past. So it's one of those things that's hidden under a bush that people don't know about it. And every, it seems to me that every three to four years, someone rediscovers career technical vocational education. Well, there there are presidential <laughs> elections every four years, so that might be about <laughs> on par. Um, that ties in, though, I think the crux of that um, the focus on that is is that people, I think, feel that with the, the price of college is, is so expensive that people need to have skills coming out of high school to get a decent job. And I think part of that is related to a lot of the focus on affordable college, um, right. and especially when you talk about like national, like presidential elections. That's a big topic. And yeah. I know one of the arguments that is going to come up on the Democratic side, at least, is free college or partially free college or free community college. Okay. So I know that's, that's a big question of, of funding and, and how we uh, prioritize, you know, national money. But do you think that, I think Obama started this with uh, maybe a free community college or mm -hmm. first two years or something. Is that a reasonable path, do you think, knowing that you focused on public education or, um, you know, uh, at the lower level, but if you're setting up students ideally as they are about to graduate high school, what is a good next step for them? Because, you know, a four-year university, not everybody needs to go to North right. Carolina State or UNC or whatever. Right. It's not a good fit for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dennis Wicker was one of the first people, one of the first politicians in North Carolina to talk about free uh, community college education. Well, they have it in Tennessee. Right. That's and a conservative state. Yeah, and I support it, and here are the reasons why. Number one, we know that jobs having a livable wage require more than a high school education. And they do require education beyond high school. And our community colleges are structured so they can provide that uh, support for students. And you think of the whole area of a physician. A physician 100 years ago didn't need to go to college necessarily. There were other ways to become uh, a physician. But today, we know that you need more education beyond the high school level if you want to have a livable wage. And consequently, we need to change with the times, and that would be to allow 
our community colleges to be free to uh, students and that gives them choices. They can continue their education at a university if that's what is a part of their career path or they can graduate, get a job, but they can come back. The big idea is that there has to be a streamless, a streamless, a seamless stream where students can get in and out of the educational water without having to repeat. Um, I'll give you two examples. Um, when uh, I was married uh, my, uh, the first time, my husband went to a community college for engineering technology. He graduated. Uh, he had to, because of the draft, he had to go in the Navy. He came back. He went to a wonderful, prestigious university to major in engineering. What happened to him was that he had to take basically the same courses using the same books. Credits didn't transfer. They didn't transfer. Well, North Carolina over the last decade has moved away from that. So we need to make sure it is a seamless transition from one area to the other. That will save taxpayers money. And in the end, it will be economic development. And three, we will have a more educated workforce. And one way to get there is to use the strategy of free community college education for students. Well, it's also uh, a good economic driver. I know a lot of businesses will partner with community colleges, mm -hmm. so you can go into community college in your local area, and you know you'll get a job because they teach courses that are specific to uh, a company that's hiring next Absolutely. door, and it keeps people. I think that might be a part of the issue when the rural areas are losing populations because people leave to go to bigger cities that have the colleges, and then right. they don't come back. Yeah. But I think... Perhaps if they had reasonable education opportunities in their home, yeah. they could stay around and, and, and improve the economies in rural areas. Right, and the former president of the community college system, Scott Rawls, who is now coming back as the president of Wake Tech, and I worked really, really hard to get legislation passed called the Career and College Promise. And the Career and College Promise allows students at the high school level to take courses at a community college in high-wage uh, areas, career pathways. And so our students can graduate from high school with community college credit and continue another year or a year and a half or a half a year to get an associate's degree or a certificate. And that uh, program passed by the General Assembly is really a wonderful economic development or in North Carolina, and it also feeds the notion of free community college education for all. Uh, we have some schools in our state, uh, for example, in the western part of the state, Avery, a very small rural area where at one time over 80% of its students graduated with some college credit. Well, that's, that's really good news. Maybe that's a good place to stop. I know I kept you a bit longer than I had promised, but I think we had a, a pretty substantive, interesting conversation. So, June Atkinson, thank you for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kurt.